Today we're going to be looking at the important leadership principle of courage and risk-taking and the scripture's uh, perspective, God's perspective on what it means to be a man who takes risks, who lives with courage in this world, a world of ambiguity and uncertainty. And we're called, though, to live our lives in a way that manifests real courage. C.S. Lewis wrote that um, courage is not simply one of the virtues, but the form of every virtue at the testing point, which means at the point of highest reality. A chastity or honesty or mercy which yields to danger will be chaste or honest or merciful only on conditions. Pilate was merciful until it became risky. So the fact is that uh, courage is a powerful quality that animates all the other virtues in your life because to have the courage of your convictions and to follow through requires then a measure of risk in this world, particularly if your convictions are based upon revelation, particularly if they're based upon a transcendent referent, because then it's going to invite us to pursue and treasure the invisible and the not yet more than the visible and the now. And that is a tremendous risk for a man to take because to obey God means that we treasure the unseen because the things that are seen are temporary. The things that are unseen, those will endure forever. So I want us to turn then first uh, to a central passage in Scripture for courage and risk-taking. It's in Joshua 1 where Joshua was encouraged by God before the conquest of the Promised Land where, again, God repeatedly gives him this word of comfort and encouragement to be strong and courageous. This has to do with the uh, transition of leadership from Moses to Joshua. And the Lord told Joshua, as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. This is in verse 5 of Joshua chapter 1. Be strong and courageous because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their forefathers to give them. Be strong and very courageous. He says it again. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left that you may be successful wherever you go. Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. The third time he says that. Do not be terrified. Do not be discouraged, for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. So I want you to notice some things that God gives him here on this um, verge. They're on the verge, really, of conquering fortified cities, armies. These are people who really were not well equipped They were people who were nomadic shepherds, and for them to go against this kind of opposition would require an enormous amount of courage. And I want you to notice three things that God gave him in this text. The first thing he said, he reminded Joshua of his faithfulness to keep all his promises. God reminds Joshua, he was reminding him how God had been faithful in keeping covenant and keeping his promises with his people from the very beginning. And so he's saying here that I've pledged to give this land to my people, and I'm going to fulfill that pledge. And that your success will not rest indeed on a military strategy or even on a well-trained army. Your success will rest on the faithfulness of my promises. That's the main idea. Second thing God does is he commands Joshua to meditate on his word. You cannot really take risks of obedience if your mind is not being renewed in this world. 
If, you're, if you are not embracing an eternal perspective in this temporal world, your mind will be then conformed to the world system and you will not be able to go against the current of the culture. To, be, to obey God means that you go against the current of the culture. It's often countercultural, counterintuitive for us to follow these things that he, or that he commands us to do for our good. And unless we are, we are renewing our mind with this transcendent biblical perspective, you're not going to do that. You're just going to buckle under the uh, pressure and give way to the ambient uh, call of the world. And you will not be a different man. You will be a man who is conformed, not transformed. Conformed not to Christ, but conformed to the image of this passing world. And that will not really give you the kind of courage, nor will it give you the, great, the greatness, the dignity to which you've been called. You've been called for more than what this world invites you to pursue. Uh, so he says, I want you to be a man of wisdom and uh, encouragement and that you gain your insight and wisdom and your stability and your shalom from the word. Third thing, besides the fact that God keeps his, his promises and is faithful, and be, besides the fact that he has given you this word, this treasury, so that you can begin to re- continue to renew your mind, the third thing is he promises to be personally present with Joshua. And so in that promise, he says, I will, myself will go with you. I'm not going to just send you out there, but I will be with you in the midst. And you read this book and you discover that's very, very much the, the reality. And then he guides them along the way. My point is that we have the same three sources of courage in our lives today. God's made some clear indications of his fidelity to his people. And he has given you a history in your life as well as you review what he's done. And my point here is that God really is faithful to keep his promises when we look back. And secondly, that God has invited us to also be men of the word so that we have an eternal perspective in this, in this temporal world. And third, he invites us to realize that he's with us, that we're, he's always present with us, and that we do not go it alone. So those sources of encouragement are summarized again in Joshua 1.9. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified. Don't be discouraged. The Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. I want us to turn to um, a passage that embeds this idea of courage in the character of God, and it would be Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 to 20. And as you're turning there, there is, as you know, in this world, no such thing as a sure thing. In this world, nothing appears to be certain, that we cannot uh, really control the outcome of a single day. So when we think we're in control, we only have bought an illusion. We're never in control. We may think we are, but we're really not. This day, what will happen this day, you really can't control all the outcomes. Even if all your meetings make, the details, all the kinds of things that transpire will be different from anything you could have planned. It's just that way. We can't control as much as we'd like to suppose. And when we think about this, uh, Paul Turnier used an analogy about the idea of life as sometimes like a trapeze act where you, you can swing in the bar and you can exercise and you can uh, build muscles all you want. But if you want to excel, what do you have to do? You have to let go of the bar. You see, you, you can keep working out on the bar, but you're not going to excel just by staying on the. What a boring act that would be just to watch the guy crawl and, and you know, pump on, uh, up on the bar itself. And he doesn't go from one to the other. The point is you have to let go with nothing beneath you and reach out for the next trapeze bar. And I think that's a very good way of understanding. There's a point at which we let go. I mean, the fact is that a turtle never moves forward until he sticks his neck out. So the fact is that you've got to move forward and you have to take some risks. This passage in Hebrews uh, 6 
tell us about two things, two reasons why God's promises are certain. The first reason why his promises are certain are the unchanging character of his purpose. It says in verse 16, I'm going to jump ahead to verse 16, because he started to talk about his promises to Abraham. And he swore it by, since there was nothing greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself. It's an interesting idea. God, he can't say, I swear to God. Okay, he's God. Uh, so you, you know, the fact is, you don't have a higher thing to swear by than yourself. There's no higher authority. So he, swore, he, he basically swears by himself. Men swear by something greater than themselves, verse 16. And the oath confirmed, confirms what is said, puts an end to the, all argument. Because God wanted to make his, the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised. He confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hope of the hope, hold of the hope offered to us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus, who went before us, has entered on our behalf. So there's a a fundamental security in two things. First of all, that God does not break his promises. And secondly, God himself doesn't change his character. His character is immutable, which means it will not change. He will not be in a good mood and a bad mood in the sense of vacillating. His character and integrity will not change. So his immutable character and the promises that flow out of his unchanging character become the two things then that this text invites us to see that give us real stability. We find our feet are not on shifting sand, but on the promises, the rock of God's promises. Now, as inhabitants of this world, then, it takes still real courage to risk everything on the promises of God. At least if you're hoping the promises of this world, you have something tangible and visible that gives you the illusion of bolstering confidence. When you're hoping God's promises, you're really staking your life on something that you haven't seen and what is not yet so it says in Romans 8, 24 and 25, In this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. And that's the reality then, that faith and hope go together. In Hebrews 11, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. So the reality is we have a certain and fixed hope. Now, frankly, it doesn't take any faith to believe that 100 out of 100 die. There's no faith involved in that. 100 people out of 100 will die on this planet. There's no ambiguity about that. You understand that. As well, we realize not only the brevity of this earthly sojourn, but we also recognize that there are powerful evidences that would cause us to see that our embracing Christ is not a leap in the dark, but a step in the light. Some of you know I wrote a book called 20 Compelling Evidences That God Exists, with that in mind. And that book deals with the reality that uh, there are very good evidences. Uh, In fact, the book starts with a skeptical stance and assumes that a person is, is not even sure how you can know anything. So, and so it, it's written specifically to a skeptic or a seeker uh, with that in mind. Before it even talks about the Bible, it talks about the whole issue of reality, the whole question about what nature, you know, what, what uh, the natural world teaches us and so forth. But builds a case for the resurrection of Christ at the end. 
and argues that there is good reason that embracing Christ is not a leap in the dark. It's a, it's a step into the light. But a step it still is, and there's a choice that's to, make, to be made. So I'm going to suggest, though, that there is a risk involved in obeying God, but that risk is always worth the, um, what, what happens there as a consequence. Uh, frankly, when it comes to taking risks, most of us are curiously irrational. I mean, just think about the fact that millions of people buy lottery tickets, even though we are three times more likely to be struck by lightning than to be struck, uh, strike it rich by a lottery. But we continue to do that. Some of you, I think, I already shared with the, the, the movie uh, Bruce Almighty. Remember when he, he doesn't know what to do with these millions of prayer requests that he's hearing? It turns out it's only a small part of Buffalo, but he thought it was the whole world. He gets all these millions of prayer requests, doesn't know what to do with them. Finally, uh, he turns them into email requests and then hits, selects all and hits yes. Great God. Imagine if all your prayers were answered the way you want them. You'd be a ruined man. But that's, a, you know, that, remember that country and western song? Thank God for unanswered prayer. There are things you'd be glad you didn't get answered the way you wanted it, what you thought. In any case, he says yes to everybody. 400,000 people win the lottery. And they, they all complain because uh, they only get 17 bucks a piece. <laughs> so they're all, they're, they're all outraged. All these unintended consequences. But the fact is, we do all kinds of things. Uh, spend long, or spend money on extremely long and improbable odds. Blithely, blithely ignore the relatively short odds that concern our health and well-being. Whether whether it has to do with uh, various habits about smoking and drinking or whatever, we distress ourselves worrying about all kinds of things that really can't change the thing itself. Uh, when we when it comes to to risk, we are often idiots. Uh, so the fact is that we make big mistakes. Risks are part of life, though, and there's a reality to this. There is, by the way, reminds me of of parachute packers during the Second World War that uh, many were required to repack. They had to repack them once a month just to make sure that they would work. But here's the interesting thing, that uh, they would sign a card in the pocket of the chute. The other thing that's interesting is that... uh, that they would be required to bail out three random ones themselves every month. Now, that's an interesting, I'll promise you, if you know you're going to be bailing out on your own packs every month, three randomly, you're going to pack them very well. And that's the point. You, want, you don't want to take uh, that kind of risk. There are some risks that are, that are going to be calculated. Some are foolish. I want us to turn to another text Numbers chapter 14, which is one of the saddest parts in the scriptures because it causes us to realize that we can make some very bad decisions. And the fact is that we can stake everything on the wrong card at the end. And it would be a tragic thing for you to put everything and stake it on something that's going to be deadly in the end. I want us to think about the context of Numbers 14. This is the context, the transitional point in the career of Israel the conquest of the land, but before the conquest of the land, remember the generation of the Exodus? was supposed to become the generation of the conquest. They were being led out by Moses, being prepared in the wilderness, and they were going to go in and conquer the land. And they were murmuring and griping and complaining quite a bit during those first two years in the wilderness, whining about the water and about the quail and the man and so forth, although God continued to sustain them and their clothes didn't wear out or anything like that. But there was one point where they came up to Kadesh Barnea, and there they sent out 12 spies to check out the land just to see what it would be like. 
And when they came back, you recall the story how 10 out of the 12 spies said that these people are in fortified cities. They're giants. We are like grasshoppers in our sight in comparison with them. We can't conquer the land. If we try to conquer it, our children will perish. Now, it was one thing for them to murmur and gripe and complain. But it was another thing entirely for them to disbelieve God and to draw back in disbelief and said, we can't do it. We're not going to follow God anymore. And when they chose to do that, they're in Numbers 13 and 14. This is the pivotal point in the book because that generation of the Exodus lost their opportunity to be the generation of the conquest. And that was a sad thing. In fact, what was going to take place as a result of their disbelief was that they'd be consigned literally to kill time for 38 more years. They were ready to go into the land, right on the edge. And then he said, you're heading back into the wilderness and you're not going to conquer this land. And it was a great tragic moment. You recall when Joshua and Clay Caleb, the two spies, warned the people, don't rebel against God. He said to them, look, don't rebel against the Lord. Don't be afraid of the people of the land because we will swallow them up. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. But sadly, it says, the whole assembly talked about stoning them because they were terrified with what they saw because they failed to believe God, in spite of the fact that God was miraculously leading them in the wilderness. Recall they had the pillar of cloud by, by um, night, uh, day and the pillar of fire by night that he miraculously pr- promised for them. Remember, these, this is the generation that saw the parting of the water. You remember that? Again, in, in that movie, Bruce Almighty parts his soup. <laughs> it's kind of, a, kind of a very strange thing. Just, just you know, I, what, what I liked about that movie, for all its flaws, it does tell us a couple of things. The b- bottom line message of that is, I'm God and you're not. You don't want to be me. You couldn't be me. And besides which, you'll use that power stupidly and selfishly, which is exactly what happens. Don't rebel, but they rebel. And when they, when they do that, the tragedy is, and the irony is, our p- children will perish who conquered the land. It was their children. And they literally spent 38 years killing time. You kill time, what happens? You kill life. And they perished one after another until everybody, 20 years old and upward, perished in the wilderness, except for three people, Moses, Joshua, and Caleb. Those were the two spies who believed God. And then it would be their children who'd be the generation of the conquest. It is a tragic thing when we, it's the sin of unused potential. When we choose to say, God, I don't believe when he invites us and nudges us and prompts us to move into a direction that's going to require some risk. I don't think I can trust you for that. There'll finally come a point, if you're not careful, we'll say, okay, have it your way. Then you'll look back and now you reach the point of no return and the sin of unused potential will be there. The reality is then that by pursuing a pain avoidance strategy, and by playing our cards close to our chest because we're afraid to trust God. The irony here is actually you inflict greater pain upon yourself when you try to avoid the pain, the so-called pain of, of obedience. In seeking to avoid what appears to be pain associated with obeying God, you will bring greater pain upon yourself. This, it is the way. So that uh, as a result of their lack of courage, they missed out. And as a result of our lack of fortitude and courage, we too can miss out on opportunities, he calls us. I do believe that uh, obeying God and obeying the principles of Scripture in this world requires significant risk. Because to trust God is to pursue the invisible over the visible. But it's my belief that ultimately God will honor that 
and cause us to be a people who combine these things together. We also have had the gospel preached to us, Hebrews 4.2 says, just as they did. But the message they heard was of no value to them because those who heard did not combine it with faith. There comes a point where you have to know the truth, but you also have to live it and obey it. This book was not written for our information, but our transformation. It was not written to inform us, but to transform us. And therefore, it is a formational tool so that you don't just read it to learn tr- truths, though you do, do learn many propositional truths, but you, you read it so that you can be transformed and come to know God in a relational way, not just a propositional uh, context, so that we apply it and embed it in our lives. Now, I believe, therefore, that we are called to take steps of faith and trust in his presence. Uh, let me turn us to another text. It's in Ezekiel chapter 28. This is an interesting sort of risk that the prophet, prophet's engaged in cons- can consistently, I think. And in this, in this kind of risk, they would go against the kings, powerful men, often in the context of their success, and tell them that they were doing something that was ultimately going to lead to their own destruction. In Ezekiel chapter 27, he des- describes the glory that was Tyre. It was a powerful city that through its trade and through its shipping required an immense wealth, prestige, and power in its time. But then this word of the Lord comes to the king of Tyre and challenges him. Because you think you are wise, as wise as God, I'm going to bring foreigners against you. The most ruthless of nations will draw their swords against your beauty and wisdom and pierce your shining splendor. They will bring you down to the pit and you will die a violent death in the heart of the seas. When you, will you say then, I am a God, in the presence of those who kill you? You will be but a man, not a God, in the hands of those who slay you. Uh, so the point here is that he is doing something rather, rather strong. Anyway, it's one thing to criticize someone when things are not going well, but, uh, and to say correct things and make it better. But when a guy's being extremely successful and he comes against him, he's taking a huge risk, and, and it really it requires tremendous conviction for you to go against what seems to be successful in this world. I believe that great conviction requires great truth. And when you can combine real truth and conviction with that truth, then you have uh, the power of courage. Because in this text, he says, I have spoken, declares the sovereign Lord. Uh, Here's a man who had courage because he was convinced of the promises of God and that he knew that he was a man who was called to communicate great truth. So it's a matter of really challenging people in their own arenas and in their own lives to take the risks that that are necessary, the risks of obedience and pursuit, and to model that in their own lives. It's been said that failure is the back door to success. Uh, I'd like you to turn to John chapter 2. I'd like to, to suggest that risk also can be a back door to success. Jesus took a huge risk in John chapter 2, verses 12 to 22, when he cleared the temple. When it describes how, when it came time for the Passover, he went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found men selling cattle, sheep and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove them all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? 
His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. Then the Jews demanded of him, what miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. The Jews replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. This was a hugely risky, risk-taking adventure here. For him to take a, a bunch of ropes and turn them into a, a, a scourge and then to chase these people out of the temple. This was a profitable business and there were thousands of people who were buying and selling. For him to do this is to risk rejection by the crowds, risk uh, them, uh, them taking him aside and killing him, risk misunderstanding, any number of things. But his zeal for his father's house was consuming him, and he ultimately chose to cleanse this symbolic of the reality of Israel's own religious externalism and, uh, and folly. Again, as I see it here, I see a man who takes calculated risks, and we are also called to take calculated risks. One businessman put it this way, having the faith to attempt something new or different, even though it might be hard or lead to failure, he maintains that risk is not recklessness. Recklessness involves little or no forethought. In contrast, those who take risks are aware that they face enormous obstacles to achievement, yet the rewards seem well worth the effort. The reality is that there are going to be risks involved in any real venture and something that's going to be uh, requiring uh, some endeavor. Donald Rumsfeld years ago said, success tends to go not to the person who is error-free, because he also tends to be risk-adverse. Rather, it goes to the person who recognizes that life is pretty much of a percentage basis. It isn't making mistakes that's critical, it's correcting them and getting on with the principal task. The reality is that um, Babe Ruth being the strikeout king required him to take risks and make mistakes in order to do as well as he did. The fact is that we make mistakes, that we take risks, they're calculated risks. We make adjustments. We learn from our errors. We learn from our mistakes, and we go on from there. And as we all have admitted in this room, we typically learn a great deal more from our mistakes anyway than we do from our successes. They teach us more about ourselves, more about reality in any case, and that, that pain often does that. So as I evaluate these uh, thoughts then, as you cultivate your leadership skills, don't be afraid to take those calculated risks and understand that actually, if you commit your ways to God, your business, your endeavors, your family, whatever, wherever you are, at the end of the day, you're going to at least be putting everything where, uh, based upon the promises and commitments of God. There's no assurance that he'll bail us out of the mistakes we've made in this life. There will be consequences to foolish mistakes, but at least we have the assurance that he is with us and can even redeem the folly. He can take that and he can transform that and make it the substance of our own growth.